tiny homes, from millions of views of tiny home videos on YouTube to zoning considerations. There's a lot to talk about when it comes to the tiny home movement. On this Bernie Chats with Daniel Sanderson, we'll be talking about them. Let's get started. So everybody meet Daniel. Daniel uh, works for a metal fabrication company that started a division that is making tiny homes. He also happens to be involved with a startup platform that helps authors getting to the next level with their publications and with their writing process. We're going to get into the tiny home topic, and then we're going to uh, branch off into a separate Bernie Chats episode, and we're going to talk about the authorship website. Daniel, do you want to tell us a little more about yourself and and maybe speak to that, especially to the tiny home aspect for this episode? Yeah, thanks, Bernie. The uh, tiny homes has been a uh, an endeavor that has been uh, several years in the making, as you can imagine, to be involved with the design and manufacturing process um, from the ground up. Uh, I operate in the in the world as a consultant. And uh, one of my clients, uh, a few years ago, I had the pleasure of, of, of starting a project with him, really, really from the ground up. He developed a, a, a line of homes. Uh, they are small homes, uh, so they, they do fit in that category of tiny homes. Um, but uh, they also fit in a, a high-end niche and a little bit of the narrative towards minimal lifestyle and simplicity. So... There's a lot of engineering and research that has to go into making making a, a living space not only comfortable but high performing and and valuable for for the marketplace. And of course, for your organization, which um, I got to know quite a bit when we were producing videos for the parent company, they're quite a high end metal fabrication company that produces metal facades. They are going to be architecturally inspired homes. Um, right. Quite often in and throughout British Columbia, where where we do a lot of our work, um, we are known in the industry for doing very very high quality uh, work. And when we launched the um, the tiny structures or small dwellings, as Bifama Homes likes to call them, we wanted to emphasize more on the monumental status. And so in an architectural classification. Uh, monumental is in fact uh, the highest quality of architectural design and building structure that you can imagine. Um, and the reason for that high status um, is simply uh, because it's reserved for cultural buildings. You wouldn't build something like the Sydney Opera House with a life cycle of, of 20 years. You, you want to build it for a cultural life cycle. So you want it to last for multiple generations. And that was the approach that we took with um, these small dwellings. Yeah, and I think that's good for people to know because for the tiny houses, it kind of speaks to the quality and the attention to detail and engineering that a company of, of your caliber would want to put into designing anything they do or build. And so now you're building tiny homes and you're going to probably have that same uh, methodology of going through the different steps from an architectural and a structural point of view. So why did the company decide to, to create tiny homes in the first place? Uh, as we know, markets change, societies change, uh, the needs for societies change. And I think the, the entrepreneurs that are able to pivot, uh, adapt, and produce things that the market truly needs um, and is looking for, then these are the companies that will be successful in the future. We do wanna do something that's more sustainable, more environmentally friendly. And so there's the conscious movement towards that as well. So there's kind of a couple complementary uh, contributors to, to move in that direction. For people that aren't familiar with tiny homes, what is a tiny home? Yeah, that's a great question, Bernie. So essentially a tiny home is um, anything around that 400 square foot uh, marker, okay? And there's a history of tiny homes. And I, I think anybody that 
you know, were to uh, look it up on the internet, you'll find that it is that size of approximately 400 square feet of living space. And the movement, in fact, actually uh, uh, started and originated from uh, a group of people that really wanted to circumvent uh, traditional uh, mortgages and wanted mm. to focus their lifestyle around um, not being a, 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 you know, I'll use scare quotes here, a slave, uh, you know, to their mortgage. And mm. that's, a, that's a valid perspective. Um, I can understand it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I think, and that's, that's the point that we want to kind of acknowledge is that I can understand how people would perceive it that way. Now, in our society, um, you know, residing yourself to building equity has a lot of obvious upsides and uh, has made and produced a lot of wealth for a lot of people throughout North America and worldwide. Um, so, like, just to reemphasize, the idea of the tiny house and the tiny house movement, tiny home movement, was essentially to try and say there's an alternative lifestyle that we don't need to get caught into that trap right, of, mm. of constantly working for uh, a mortgage sort of thing, right? So, so Daniel, um, there's, there is, as you put it, a movement. It's quite a large movement, actually. And if you, anybody who goes online and looks up on YouTube, Tiny Homes will find probably thousands, if not tens of thousands of videos that have been nicely produced, describing all kinds of interesting tiny homes. On that note, how does the tiny home movement align with the concept of minimalism? Oh, um, they pretty much uh, dovetail immediately from the concept of inception. The idea here is that um, you're living in a space that has a smaller square footage. And just by, you know, the sheer definition of it being small, tiny alternative to like a larger square footage single family home, you have no choice but to actually live with less uh, consumables. Now, I, I want to give you a little bit of a, um, a, a two scenario sort of uh, example here. So first would be, um, you know, obviously prior to COVID, because I'm not doing much uh, traveling these days, mm -hmm. but um, the family and I, we would get on a plane and we would go to Hawaii for a vacation. And I, I remember uh, ending up in a condo or, uh, you know, uh, a various different uh, uh, timeshare location, I guess. It depends on, you know, where we were scheduling our accommodations. But it, quite often when we went to Hawaii, we would find places that had uh, like an in-kitchen suite. And so we would balance eating out and then also eating in the space. Now, my point is, is that when we arrived in these places, the square footage was quite, quite small. And I remember the feeling of, hey, I could live in this space. And it was quite an easy sort of uh, migration into this smaller square footage and it felt just fine. There was no issue. Um, another example is uh, I grew up around campfires in the summertime, right? So my parents would take me camping and uh, you know, to be, to, to like keep up with the Joneses, so to speak, we would have RVs and motorhomes and trailers and we would go on camping trips, uh, probably like a lot of people. And um, we never really found that the, the, the trailer or that, 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 that mobile unit was actually oppressive. You know, it was times in the summer where we spent a lot of time outdoors and, mm -hmm. and this type of thing. So it automatically kind of encourages that type of lifestyle. So in my perfect tiny home vision, there are not one tiny home. There are two or three tiny homes all configured together. And I have a few different layouts that I've actually sketched on paper of how that would work. Um, one of them is two side by side and one running across on top on the roof of them. So I have rooftop sun decks, right? So in that scenario, one of those three or two or three units could be half office and half in-law suite or even all in-law suite. So I think that could be a really interesting concept too, where you could have three tiny homes on one lot and one of them could be the in-laws, one of them could be the office, and one of them could be your living space with your spouse and perhaps a little one. There's actually a rendering on the site that, that somewhat shows a few of those examples. I'd, I'd love to show them to you. Okay, that looks beautiful. 
Yeah, now, now you can drag that and spin that around so that you can kind of get a 3D. Um, okay, that's a great concept. Yeah. Why no windows on this side? It's highlighting that we can do uh, a facade with metal. And okay. uh, quite often, there's usually a door on that side. Basically, there's um, ways to mix and match these, just as you've described how you envisioned you know, two units and then one stacked on top of each other. There's this possibility. And what, what the website itself actually represents is just examples, right? Mm -hmm. So if somebody came to us and said, well, I want to stack, you know, three this way and four that way, and I've got a sloped uh, property and, mm -hmm. you know, no problem. So anything that, that somebody sees on the website is kind of a starting point for ideas. Mm -hmm. Now, when you go down further on that, that one page, there's a really nice rendering of a nice um, oh, young... hang on, I'll, I'll switch to the screen again. Can you see it now? Yeah, yeah, that's okay, it right there. Where this, this maybe uh, like um, a young woman is actually going to be walking up the stairs. So right. she's going into her separate unit upstairs. Right. Now, if, for example, she had parents that were living on down in the downstairs sort of area, well, um, it's like floor level, right? So you can, you know, I mean, as, as people get older, they're concerned about, you know, wheelchair access and not having to walk upstairs. So, right. you know, you could do things like put an elevator in or, you know, just have a proper wheelchair thing. There's lots of modifications that this particular manufacturer can do. Now, the you'll also notice that there's a considerable amount of, um, of concrete and metal stairs. So all of this is all produced out of that facility. Okay. Um, the vertical black strips that you see are accented uh, black uh, Akoya, and they're, they're meant to help with daylighting. Um, as you scroll down a little bit further, you'll see a citywide dwell, uh, or a city dwell wide, and this is mm -hmm. much bigger. And I think this one will speak a little bit to what you were referring to about having them stack, okay? So if you go down to the, the bottom image and you'll see um, a middle-aged guy, maybe a little bit more, he's got a little gray in his, in, his, uh, um, in his beard and his hair and stuff, but he's coming down the stairs. Right. So the ground floor is intended for, um, you know, say for example, an aging um, a couple or individual. Mm -hmm. And then the top is more like a caretaker suite in a way, right? So you can have a separate entrance for, let's say in the time of COVID, you have somebody that's upstairs uh, that manages and, and you know is maybe a caregiver to the people uh, below, right? Mm. And so that's kind of the concept, all things are possible. That's one of the things that anybody who stumbles on this that has um, any kind of interest in it, realize that there's nothing cast in stone that says this is how your home has to be it's very customizable right so yeah. if there was a need for a staircase inside the unit no problem it can just be designed in right from the beginning so if it can be conceived it could be achieved as long as it, yeah it doesn't break any engineering or physics rules right <laughs> <laughs> yes i i would imagine so which one did you want me to visit here daniel um so if you go to the gallery um and gallery uh, this is a good place to look at you know, the various different solutions. So I noticed here that these are approximately 850 square feet, and that would be a double home, a double tiny home. And yeah. for people who, you know, are, are in metric or, or don't really know the measurements, 850 square feet is about the size of a small to medium two-bedroom apartment mm. or a very large one-bedroom apartment with den, let's say. Oh, well, and scroll down because then the, the city dwell wide challenges the, uh, again, it shows the higher square footage. Yeah, to 1700 square feet, right? So, right. And this is as a very you go, open, open concept. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you can really, you know, just start to imagine you know, uh, a nice U shaped kitchen and a, uh, a dining room and a bedroom off the side, a couch yeah. area. Like, qu there's quite a nice living space. This is very fascinating stuff. It really gets one to think out of the box about what they require for their own personal home space. Yeah. So I'm going to go to the gallery. 
this is a fascinating idea for a uh, chalet or a cottage at the lake. Um, this is just awesome. One of the signature benefits of uh, Bifama Tiny Home is that it's got a four-point pedestal system. So if we're talking about interrupting or integrating into the biodiversity of your lot, there's only a four square foot interruption. So basically the pedestal only requires a one foot by one foot hole. You, you uh, drill down into that hole. And so you can see there, there's a mm -hmm. pedestal system that, you know, is in the snow. And so the entire unit um, does have a structural foundation, but it has a very minimal ecological footprint. There's a lot of innovation put into these units for that exact reason. Mm -hmm. With a home like this, how transferable is it? If somebody, let's just say somebody said, okay, I want to set up a small community or resort of tiny homes. And I want to have six chalets there that people could rent, maybe book for a week or a month. And, and I'm not sure what I want to do with the property in the long run. I might want mm -hmm. to change it up. I might, might want to move it, or I might want to, you know, um, change my investment. Um, in other words, I might want to liquidate and sell them off one by one. Um, mm -hmm. What can you speak to that a little bit, th that kind of usage and maybe other usages? Bernie, I'm actually really excited by that because it, it feels yeah. I have a really good response for somebody that might have that in mind. OK, so, for example, let's say let's say I was looking for a piece of property and I decided to buy, you know, 50 of these and go and put them in a new concept of a community. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, let's say for whatever reason, we have no idea why, but we want to move them. Well, the fact that these are mobile to the site means that they're easily mobile to be relocated to a new site, mm -hmm. right? And so um, that pedestal foundation is something that, now I'm just going to use numbers here because I think it, it gives a proper context. Sure. If I was putting one of these on my property, then I would phone up a local contractor or excavator and I would say, look, I need to have four holes dug to put these pedestals in okay mm -hmm. it's a day's work not a human it's not a tremendous cost once those are in place then the truck like you're showing here can come and the crane can put the unit in place and now you have a structural foundation if for example you wanted to move it essentially you have to register the move yeah, you need the proper permits because it is an oversized load, as you can see, mm -hmm. but it's quite an easy thing to do. You just get the crane to come, you uh, decouple the unit from the foundation itself, put it on the trailer and move it to a new location. Now, the fact is actually that that foundation can also be dug up and repurposed in a new location. So the environmental footprint is like non-existent at that point, if right. once the earth recovers. So you don't have to do any remediation of the of the property and and the land. You don't have to bring everything anything back into shape except for those few square feet where the pedestals sat. Exactly, and um, whether you dug them out or you left them there, I mean they're just like a con a concrete, you know, pedestal. And you know, like I said, it's about a half day's work for an excavator. It's not really like there's a lot of site prep there it's it's really like once that truck comes with your new home mm -hmm. and it's coupled to the foundation it's kind of like move-in ready and you know put, put your living materials in there and stock your fridge and Great. hook up your power and your services and you're you're basically good to go so that's a very environmentally sound solution then yeah well yeah we hope so and uh I have to tip my hat off to Greg, who you've met him before, and I'm going to give him a little props. The man's a genius. I really do. He's a really smart guy. He's conceived this project. This is his baby. Um, there's so many things that make this brand and this company so amazing. I see you guys having complementary skills, which is great because you're coming up with some really great designs here. Uh, a lot of environmental forethought and a lot of luxury forethoughts for people that want a tiny home and perhaps want something a little bit higher scale. In watching a, a lot of tiny home videos, I've noticed there's there's a certain kind of mindset of people that are that are going into the tiny homes. They're um, 
either looking to downsize or looking to get into a home they can afford. And there seems to be a lot of them that are working digitally or photographers or designers, uh, people along that line, um, people that have access to some property, but don't necessarily want to stay with the owners of the property, be it their, their parents or a friend or an uncle or something like that. And um, there's room on the property to put a, a second home. And they, so building a tiny home on that property or putting a tiny home on that property seems to make a lot of sense. So when somebody's considering doing that, uh, whether it's putting it on their property, leasing a property or, or making use of some property they have access to, um, what are the main things they should be considering when looking at a tiny home project? Well, in my experience, it is a new emerging market. Although the tiny house movement has been around since I think the 70s as kind of a reaction to people not getting into the mortgage traps. The thing I think the average consumer has to think about is unfortunately a little bit of that buyer beware mentality. Uh, there are a lot of regulations uh, from municipality to municipality about residential home construction, whether it's a, a small home or a large home. And I have to point out in defense of uh, the regulations that the regulations are there to actually protect the general public. So the good questions to ask when you're considering to move into or consider this kind of lifestyle is, are there the appropriate uh, approvals? Uh, no one wants to get stuck building their dream home and their lifestyle to find out that it's just simply unattainable. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you an example. If um, you, know, you and your significant other were thinking about buying one of these homes and you're looking at 10 potential suppliers of these homes, uh, you would be really, really doing yourself an enormous service by making sure which ones legitimately can actually be put onto a property uh, in terms of approvals. So if only one or two of them have all the appropriate government approvals, then that makes your decision-making process a lot simpler. I think those are really the first questions to ask any manufacturer is how does that approval process work? So is that making sure that the, the home itself is up to code? Is that, is that the way to put it? That's one real aspect of it. And I know as a manufacturer, a factory built manufacturer of yeah. homes, that that's an extensive process from a national regulation standpoint and also municipal standpoints. There's a lot of things that you have to go through in order to comply with the regulations. You need to be working with professionals that, that know how those uh, regulations work. So is it, I do is have it, to advocate for us, but we, we know how that works and we've been in that industry, you know, for a long time. Yeah. Is that fair to say then that, that there's, there's two sides to it from an approval point of view, there's the building, whether it's up to code or not. And then the second side is the municipality and what the local regulations are for actually having, uh, tiny homes on various types of properties. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And then, and then I guess when you're talking to the home manufacturer, they more than likely, if it's in the area, have some some idea and can probably guide you a little bit if they know what they're doing on where to get the proper information for the municipality, right? Uh, yeah, well, we like to, our approach is um, design centric and customer centric. So okay. what we what we do is we bring people in and the municipalities, they do change. Right. Um, and a lot of times they're site specific. So this is the whole process of submitting um, a, for a building permit, right? And so okay. um, if your company has all of the national approvals and they want to make a submittal into a municipal uh, situation, right. then that's the good starting point. And then the municipality will review it. And we work with the clients on that municipal approval. That's great. Yeah. So that that's a really important thing. And this, this mm. is a, not a process that we've invented ourselves. This is a standard process that mm -hmm. um, any individual that wants to build a home mm -hmm. uh, on, on a residential property, they have to go through that process. They have to submit a bu building permit. It has to get approved. And there may be certain stipulations, covenants, for example, are an excellent example. So if you live close to a protected habitat or you have a stream running through your property, 
then the covenant associated with that particular property is going to say you need to make the appropriate considerations to protect the habitat of that running stream because it's ecologically a sensitive area. And so um, that's a specific site situation that a municipality will really want to try and protect and want to make sure that it's being accommodated for. Um, so so that, that makes me think of um, two, two aspects that might be involved in that process. One of them is the potential that you might need to gain approval from the neighbors. And the other one is the potential that you might have to go to a uh, city council meeting or a municipal council meeting and present your case. Uh, are can you see those as possibly being involved in the process or are those separate things? Well, that's an escalated sort of thing. If it's something outside of the norm, then it's called a variance. You have to apply mm -hmm. for a variance and there possibly could be a hearing and you do have to make your case and everything. So this yeah. is, again, another reason why you want to make and try and comply with as much of the code as possible mm -hmm. um, and make a strong case that you're not only meeting it, but you're exceeding it. And so from our standpoint, as a factory built house manufacturer, we approach that very similarly. We look at every decision that we make and figure out how do we exceed the requirements uh, for the building code? When you've accommodated that, that's a huge check mark for you, you know, to be able to offer documentation that you exceed their minimum requirements from a code standpoint. Yeah, that's, that's and huge. And, and especially, for anybody, huge. especially for anybody who's purchasing for the first time or is not that familiar with that process, then I guess, number one, it's good for them to be aware that before they put their money in, they should make sure that their money's not going to have to be taken out. They're not making an investment that they're going to have to backtrack on. Yeah, yeah. One thing to add though, Bernie, I also take a little bit more of a, uh, an industry role. I consider yeah. it part of a responsibility. So I like to facilitate those discussions. I hold, mm. you know, group conversations. I'm active in the community on this type of topic. So right. I have an open door policy with people that, you know, want to talk about this subject, right? Mm. Because I think it, the industry needs support. So if somebody has a question yeah. and they're interested in talking about tiny homes mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with me in an area that I have nothing to do with, I'm more than happy to, you know, engage with people because I think the industry as a whole needs uh, some support and it needs to grow and, and get some, um, you know, positive growth and uh, it needs to move with society in a way that makes sense for everybody. Yeah, and I think, I think that speaks really well to your position as a thought leader and your organization's position as thought leaders in that. Um, I mean, you're creating some very innovative housing models and uh, getting that rolling, and, and that's great. So what, what do you see as the three main benefits of moving into a tiny home? Well, I think by um, simplifying their life, yeah. I've seen time again and again that when people parse down the unnecessary material items in their life, it no longer consumes them as much. And it kind of frees them from the, the types of things that just occupy our minds, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have less possessions means there's less maintenance, there's less things that you have to constantly kind of be aware of. Mm -hmm. And in the, in the culture of minimalism, there is the idea and the phrase of intentional living. It means you recapture back what, what it means to live an intentional life. And that that's kind of permeates the culture of the minimalist. And I think that's got to be really desirable and cathartic for somebody who wants to kind of move their life in that trajectory. It's, it's an individual choice, really. There are two episodes, uh, one's a movie and one's um, an actual series that recently just launched, I believe in January of this year. And okay. the movie is a couple years old, mm -hmm. um, but it's from two guys called The Minimalists. Mm. And it's an excellent series and movie to watch because mm -hmm. I think it really nicely highlights the struggle and the development and the realization from two individuals that brand themselves around this concept of living a more intentional life. Mm -hmm. And so it does, it goes into concepts of tiny homes. It goes into concepts of reducing wardrobe. Um, 
purging unnecessary items from your living space, uh, you know, these types of things. And I think that's a really, really good starting point for people to try and really get um, a, a good representation of what that lifestyle is all about. And so that was the movie and, and what's the episodes? Well, it would be just under the minimalists, right? They oh, have, I see. I see. Yeah, so it's, it's the movie and then they branched off into, into a series. Yeah. And so quite easy to just look up sure. minimalists on uh, Netflix. On Netflix and, yeah. I think I yeah. saw the movie a while back, like a couple of years ago. And it, yeah. it paints the, the topic of minimalism quite well. So one of the things back to the size of the house, one of the things that I've noticed is that um, you can really leverage the outdoor space when you have a tiny home to, oh, yeah. to create additional living space, et cetera. Of course, you know, when it's raining or snowing, that might be less desirable or less doable. Chances are, if you have a tiny home, you're going to have some property with it. And there's a mm -hmm. lot of benefit in leveraging that outdoor space as well. Yeah. I've seen some where even the roof becomes a rooftop deck, which is great. Yeah, there's there there are a lot of ways to integrate an indoor outdoor space, and uh, that's something that I personally have been involved with. My entire architectural career has been involved with indoor outdoor spaces. Okay. Um, there's lots of options. Um, once I think people start to think about integrating the outdoors, um, there's lots of ways to be able to do that. Indoor outdoor kitchens, um, greenhouses, for example partially heated spaces so a space that maybe isn't part of the core heating system of your home right. but you know may take advantage of passive solar heating from the position of where windows are on a property uh, in relation to the to the sun and so <clears throat> there's lots of ways to start to reimagine how you can integrate your lifestyle into uh, into nature you know I think once people start investigating that, the, the, you know, it kind of snowballs, right? I've seen the transformation for people that really enjoy being outside, um, whether it's working in a garden, having a greenhouse, a solarium, you know, or just spending more time outside, right, uh, on their property or in their community. Uh, one of the things that really differentiated our endeavor and our project was sure. this concept of minimalism without compromise. And the reason behind that, you know, slogan, if you want to call it such, it's that there's a lot of uh, small houses, tiny houses, uh, simplistic living situations that feel like hyper compact in terms of the spaces. And I know that when I have asked some colleagues, friends, family, we are fairly certain that people, especially as you're getting a little bit older, don't want to live and sleep on a bed, for example, that you have to climb a ladder to every night. They want to have all the, the benefits of living in a, a really nice space without feeling like they're giving up something. Mm -hmm. And so I know that that was the ethos or the design intent as we were building these units mm. um, was to say, hey, you know what? Ours is going to be just a little bit different. It's going to be really wide open, right? This wide open concept. So there's nothing really cramped or, you know, excessively claustrophobic to these homes. Uh, right. They're intentionally made to be small, but large, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so Daniel, you mentioned mortgages. Can people have mortgages on tiny homes? Are, are financial institutions willing to give mortgages on them? Um, I actually approached a few of the institutions, preliminary, right? And I found right. that the Royal Bank, for instance, um, had no minimum in terms of square footage for a residential unit. And in fact, they gave mortgages on small apartments. I think the apartments were around oh. the range of 400 square feet. And so the advisor that I talked to seemed to be um, you know, very bullish on the um, this concept of, of tiny homes. So Daniel, what stage are you at in producing these homes? Because they're, they're quite, uh, quite interesting from what I've seen. Um, they're, you know, metal framed, etc. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about where you're at with the production and rollout of these and what the goals are going forward. Uh, COVID slowed things down tremendously. Essentially, we're going to have uh, a completion of a unit Okay, uh, you know, all the interior finishing and uh, 
the cabinetry and everything all complete uh, by by the end of March. Um, and, this so, is, and this is March March 2021. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, in an ideal world, I think we're about a year behind. But uh, um, I think some of the things that were really slowing us down as a manufacturer were the all of the uh, requirements, the government requirements, really. And I'm not saying that as as a protest. I'm saying that mm -hmm. if anybody really looks into this industry, and this is another one of those things that kind of cuts both ways. Um, there's municipal leaders that are very skeptical about the tiny house movement. Um, mm -hmm. And the reason is, is because they need to know that the um, the bylaws and all of the regulatory requirements have been considered uh, in the production of the units. And so as a manufacturer and a consultant representing a manufacturer, I know that there's a tremendous amount of work that has to go uh, into making sure that it's approved, um, that it meets all of the engineering requirements. And at the end of the day, this is all just good for the public. But because it's a new emerging solution, right, in our society, um, there's a lot of ambiguity there. And there may be a lot of, you know, providers that maybe haven't gone through that lengthy, more time consuming, and to be quite honest, very expensive process of getting everything certified. Daniel, without getting political too much, um, could some of the concern from government and, and regulatory bodies could it be related to uh, the possible effect that tiny homes could have on the housing market and the pricing values of existing larger houses? Is there anything, any correlation there, do you think? Hmm. And it's, it's really, I'm not, my mind isn't going towards a political answer at all. I okay. think what it is, is that um, essentially you've got two competing forces, one that's a market-driven uh, force mm -hmm. that has various different um, effects contributing to it, right? There's a housing shortage uh, in British Columbia. I think that extends right across the country. There's indigenous populations that are looking for housing solutions. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, a North American, basically a North American shortage. As we kind of stare this COVID reality in the face, I think economies are being decimated. And so, you know, we're in this real flux of what, you know, how do we adapt? What do we do? Do we go big? Do we go expensive? And on the back burner of all of that reality, there's the cost of energy. And so real estate upside and growth and square footage is, has been the model, right? It's like you take uh, a lot size and you build as much as you can on it to maximize your, your real estate value. However, at what point does that become a future liability in terms of operating costs? And why are we building redundancy into something that uh, especially when, you know, the mindset from hopefully our, our political side, and it's the only point I'll mention on a, on a political sort of flair, is just that, you know, this is, this are the values that we're chasing uh, in, a, in, a, in a political sort of conversation? Are they towards a climate reality or are they, you know, and, and you know, mm -hmm. tempering our use of resources or is it, is it, you know, more about reduction and, and trying to make things less disposable, right? And so, those values will come through. And what mm -hmm. I'm excited about is, you know, I'm essentially a market guy. So I think that we want to encourage people to make the right choices based on science. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but the, mar the market is the ultimate kind of, you know, determiner, I think. It's, it's a very wise determiner uh, without knowing that it's wise. <laughs> Having your finger on the tiny home pulse before COVID, it seemed like there was a real trend towards downsizing and getting smaller homes. And here in Vancouver, a lot of people uh, have downsized to capitalize on the increased value in property where they've sold their property and perhaps purchased a smaller home, uh, maybe an hour out of town, maybe in the Okanagan, the interior of British Columbia. Um, but they've downsized and taken the profit from selling their house and put it in the bank or in other, in other investments or whatever they wanted to do with it. Um, now with COVID, there seems to be a trend for people to move into larger houses because hmm. they, they assume number, there's a few assumptions. One, um, if I'm going to be at home self-isolating, then, then I might want to have a gym and I might want to have room for people to come for a close family to come stay for an extended period of time. I might want to spend more time in a bigger kitchen. 
I might want to have a pool in the backyard, those kinds of considerations. Another consideration is, okay, um, my boss is okay with me not reporting to the office every day. I only have to mm -hmm. go in once a week or a couple times a week. So I don't mind the one hour or one and a half hour commute from the Sunshine Coast or from, again, uh, two hours away or whatever the situation is. Uh, I prefer to have a larger home to work out of the house in. And, and the other consideration too is, okay, uh, do I really want to put mom and dad into a retirement home at this point? I think, I think they might be safer in a basement suite or in an in-law suite, as we say. So, um, so that's some of the, some of the market dynamics that play in my mind. What are you finding? What are you seeing as far as that trend? Or do you have your, your finger on that pulse? You know, Bernie, that was very well articulated, actually. And no, but they're all very, very valid points. And my mind goes to the market, really. And, and ultimately, in, in five years, 10 years, uh, you know, what will that decision, will it pay off in your benefit? And quite honestly, it could. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I, and I, I, I'm not entirely sure. One of the things about the tiny house movement too, is that I think there's a bit of a temptation to think that this is how ev everybody has to live. Mm -hmm. And um, starting with the minimalist mindset, I mean, I, I know that you're quite involved with farmer markets and uh, you're very much conscious of the environment. I talked to somebody just recently who um, has four teenagers right? They're, they're living with four teenagers as, as a, I should not say they, as a single mother mm -hmm. with four teenagers. Wow. So there's no way that a tiny house would work for them in that particular stage of their life, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's this type of thing where our lifestyles are somewhat dictating what and how we can live. Mm -hmm. Now, in the case of somebody who's living in a downtown environment, and uh, they live in a condo, maybe it's a young professional group that when they bought their condo, they weren't allowed to work from home. And now they're finding, heck, we can work from home. So let's mm -hmm. maybe move out to the country, get a little bit bigger of a square footage. Let's get a few dogs. Let's grow some vegetables. Mm -hmm. You know, it, one thing that, that COVID has kind of taught us is that it's, it's um, pushed us into a societal flux, right? We don't know really what you know what the future will bring us in the next year and it's, it's, it's almost uh, like we're we're going through the tunnel and we don't exactly know where the tunnels are going to come out to yeah you know we don't know what that uh that opening we're going to get out of the tunnel and we're going to look and say oh okay so this is where we ended up right just like at yeah. the beginning of at the beginning of the tunnel i.e the beginning of covid we all had certain ideas about what was going to happen too you know property prices we thought were going to drop but they've skyrocketed yeah. demand has skyrocketed yeah. what are some of the other uses that people would use tiny homes for or and specifically this style of tiny home yeah so when we first launched we um had a slogan called minimalism without compromise and really this was essentially there to capture the idea that if you want to live in a small space you don't have to live in a kind of like a kit home or something that makes you feel like you're compromising quality. Mm -hmm. So the niche that this particular manufacturer is going after is someone that can afford the very best, but because the very best is a small square footage, uh, it's, it shouldn't be unattainable for the majority of people, at least people that are serious about moving into a small space. Um, now, moving on to the kind of the first part of your question, um, I think the, the, the best place to kind of leave this is in the extreme section of the site. And so on the website where we talk about extremes, there are three featured where, where case studies. Where should I navigate to on the site? Oh, it's just to the left of the gallery. Oh, I see where you're going with this. Can you see the screen now, Daniel? Yeah, I can. Yep. I see where you're going with this. So the ability to raise the house quite easily. Yeah, automatically even uh, we could put sensors in there. And so what this means and, uh, you know, from a large biodiversity impact is that if you're building on a floodplain, you don't need to terraform acres and acres of land. Mm -hmm. uh, you could have sensors in there for seasonal flooding that as the, uh, you know, as, as the, the, the water is raised and now just click the little red dot to the, on the picture, which cycles through the images, 
Mm. You'll see that now you've got a, a raised water situation and, uh, you know, the little guy in the, the, the kayak. So you go it again. And you, so you might choose to have that or you might not want the water coming right to your doorstep. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, more than likely you'd be trying to get above the water or out of the water. But, um, you know, as, as again, some kind of a boating chalet or even a clubhouse for, you know, I used to be in a sailing club. This could be ideal for that, you know, just build a little bit of a dock on it with some slips and wow, you got a nice clubhouse. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the, the concept, I would say there's, ah, there's the nice. pedestal showing raising from the ground, right? And mm -hmm. so that cut section shows the technology. And so when I do say that we're using cutting edge, edge technology, I mean, we really are. One of the case studies that's not shown as we progress through this section um, is actually that we can put the home on a rotating, like a pivot, and it can actually rotate with the sun. So, oh. <laughs> yeah, so there's like so many things that we can, we can actually do just comes down to adapting the right building application for the client's needs. Right. And so maybe scroll down, I'll show you that. Daniel, I'm curious about that with, with the rotating with the sun, cause that would be a really cool feature to, to, you know, if nothing else to feel uh, proud of and show off, you know, check this <laughs> yeah. out guys, would it rotate automatically or would you do it manually? Or I guess it could be both, right? Obviously the manual would be probably cheaper, I'm assuming. Yeah, I, I mean, I've joked with Greg a little bit about it and you know, he's told me, he says, you can do it automatically. You can do it, you know, uh, with a sensor, uh, mm. you can do it manually. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I wanna get one and put a real fast speed on it, right? And <laughs> I mean, I'm joking here, of course, but I'm kind of letting my mind go down and think I could just sure. really kind of spin my house around like a merry-go-round, right? And uh, sure. Um, so, so here's something that comes to mind for me in, in that scenario is that, okay, in, in the summer, um, when, when the, the, weather, the weather is warm and the, you don't necessarily want the sun beaming in, you might want a little bit of relief from the sun and be in the shade. So you might mm. turn the back facing to the sun. And in the winter, you might want the sun coming in to help warm up your house and to feel the warmth of the, the sun in the wintertime which is a great thing up here, you know, in, in the great white North. And I think that would be, that would be really beneficial, probably from a, from a energy saving perspective as well. Right. Yeah, absolutely. These are all possible. Um, and so, yeah. So there, yeah. in that case, there would be a return on investment in having that feature of turning and rotating the house to the sun. Yeah, I will mention that out of the box, the ability to rotate these units in a mechanical automated fashion would be pretty expensive uh, with the initial rollout of our units. I, I think it would be, you know, more the, the person who uh, was leaning towards the novelty as the as opposed to the immediate uh, right. ROI, right? Yeah, you know, to so, be quite, so this, to is be kind quite of blue, this is kind of blue sky thinking right now and, and yeah. the possibilities there, but but the economics of it might not totally line up for most people at this point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 So the next one got an example of it in a, a dramatic snowfall location. And the difference here is that there's a, like a receiver or a platform for something mechanical because in a situation of a flood, the home can raise automatically oh. uh, with snow. There's no buoyancy to the, the snow itself. And so you'll need to have, a mechanical unit above to raise it. Now, mm -hmm. um, Greg, who's the owner of Ifama, he's come up with this concept and said, hey, you know what, if you had uh, a cabin that you wanted to go to for say three months of the year, and for example, he lives up in Haida Gwaii. Mm -hmm. So what he could do is he could, um, you know, go spend the time in his cabin. And then when he leaves, he could just raise it up 10 feet, uh -huh. right? So that, you know, it's protected from um, you know, intruders, vandals, um, yeah, you know, security implications. Yeah. You could put in a 360 degree camera on the underside. You can see people coming. There's, wow. you know, that's for somebody that is maybe really, really, um, you know, concerned about, you know, damage in a remote location. Right. Sure. So I don't know if I'd go to the, that extent for security, but obviously people have different, you know, thresholds and how they want to protect their investments and stuff. Yeah. So whether it's the, the snowfall issue here that we're seeing, or whether it's, uh, you know, a security issue, these are all things that are meant to have you think. And then 
The final one is actually about fires. And this is something that is and, and should really be on the minds of, of people that are uh, putting homes in areas, uh, heavily forested areas. And you'll see as we scroll through this uh, set of images, the unit itself actually has very little materials on its surface or the structure itself that are combustible, right? Because you're, you're looking at glass and metal and aluminum, mm -hmm. uh, structural steel. So those little embers that may, you know, flicker over and may start up uh, a fire on a more traditional build, like say um, a cedar cabin. Mm -hmm. Well, as you go to the next uh, image, it shows it a little bit more uh, close up and it can show, and it shows you these little embers kind of flying around in the air and there's mm -hmm. nothing for it to really grab onto because it's, it's not like an ember will hit glass and then ignite. Right. So it's now, not, it's not like kindling. And that's and, right. And I know, um, you know, people might not know the details of some of the California fires, my understanding, um, you know, and of course we have very similar situation up here to a smaller degree, but nonetheless very serious in British Columbia. Part of what is such fuel for the fire in California, at least used to be cedar shakes on the roof. Mm -hmm. it, it served as very good kindling for these embers that are that are landing on the house and started like wildfire, let's say. I think the reason why the renderings have a sporadic tree covering as we've displayed and you know we don't we we'll want to be careful to not use the use of like fireproof and all these kind of things mm -hmm. is that it does offer a benefit but it's not a catch-all solution i mean if we yeah. think about a raging forest fire if there was a forest fire bearing down directly in the pathway of this home they get pretty intense and so there is a path that you know can pretty much destroy anything but you know, we're looking at this as an improvement. And, and, and there's also the other idea that, you know, you can move it, right? So if we know that there's a season or if there's, you know, a few days notice and there's, uh, you know, the homeowner or the city or the location has access to a 50 ton crane, uh, that's just a flat deck. You come decouple it, move it, get it out of there and you've protected your investment. Wow. That's a big benefit. And Daniel, I have a question about the glass. I love the glass and how it creates this open space and a feel that, that the, the home is actually much larger than it is in actuality um, because you're not confined with the walls being solid around you. Mm -hmm. just, just a question on a lot of people at different times, you know, when they're changing, when they're doing different things at night, perhaps, they might want to not have the visibility through the windows. Um, have you guys worked at all with electronic uh, tinting of glass? What do, you, what do you call that when, when you can darken the, oh. the glass to make it opaque? Yeah, I think the term is the photovoltaic solution. Um, we haven't as of yet. I think that with initial rollouts, I know mm. some of our wish list and our priorities focused more on energy efficiency. Mm -hmm. And so um, it was... Um, a welcome challenge to try and get an all glass exterior facade, right, mm -hmm. for uh, perform really high in terms of energy values. Now, privacy, you're right, is a separate sort of thing. And I think that then starts to unfold as we have discussions with the potential client. How do we want to modify their daylighting? Um, how do we want to um, incorporate uh, privacy? Um, and I would say that these are just site specific things and they're questions that, um, you know, pretty much come up in any residential build. And so we can default to a lot of the mainstay types of solutions that would happen, say you were to just build a cabin out in the woods, right? You know, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a way to do that. One of the things with, I mean, you can pull it up again or not, but you'll notice that there was translucent glass and opaque glass. And so what happens is that um, if there's an area, obviously something like the bathroom, unless you're a bit of an exhibitionist <laughs> and you want all the nature to bear your nature, you can make those glass panels so that the warmth of the sun and the light can diffuse through, but no one can see in. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah. And you can do other things like use the facade, whether it's a, a wood facade, 
uh, like a black koya or a small strip or wide plank cedar in order to offer different kind of visibility um, and daylighting solutions. So there's, there's lots of options, right? So he's, he's emphasized something called small structures because it's effectively the home, when we start to add to them and uh, you know, the modules, it, it's not a small space. So the bedroom itself, like it's 13 and a half feet wide. And so because there's not a, a lot of cramped feeling in the space, you're gonna stand in this bedroom and you're gonna look at it and you're gonna go, wow, this is, a, this is like a 12 by 12 bedroom. Hmm. Right. And so, I mean, I, I encourage anybody to take out a measuring tape, look at their, their master bedroom and think, how big is it? And mm -hmm. think, wow, that's the living space that would happen in one of these units. Huh. Right. And so there's a certain luxury to this, this kind of unit because of it being so structural with a structural steel, mm. you don't have to cramp it in with um, a lot of unnecessary structure or storage, right. Hidden around storage and all this kind of stuff. Right. So perhaps changing the mindset from bigger is better to small is beautiful. There you go. So your, your emphasis, your emphasis on the aesthetic. I like it. What does the name Bafama stand for? And am I pronouncing it correctly? Bafama is actually a Polish name. The owner's Polish. Okay. And his father actually used to run a factory in Poland called mm. uh, Bifama, Bifama something. Mm. And so this is just more of a, uh, a personal choice from his standpoint to say, yeah, let's just call it Bifama Homes. And he kind of liked it. And it had something maybe kind of a feeling of like a family kind of space, although that's not what it really means. I think in, sure. in, in, in Italian translation, the Fama has something to do with uh, a family, but I'm not, not too certain. Um, so anyways, it was just a, a personal reference there. Great, and, and my experience, uh, and I believe that Poland is very known for its craftsmen, mm. especially when it comes to working metal. Part of the reason is the huge shipbuilding industry there. Yeah. And so there's a lot of craftsmen and machinists and stuff that I've run into in Canada that have come from Poland and brought their expertise here. And uh, Greg would be one of those. Yeah, he came uh, effectively in the in the 80s and immigrated to Canada and, you know, his facility in Richmond, you know, it's a, a 40,000 square foot facility and a lot of really good equipment. And he's got this precision work ethic mm -hmm. that is almost not seen today, yeah. right? His ability to create things in such high precision gives him a really, really good reputation in the high end residential market and so i know one of the impetuses uh behind us coming up with this design was to say let's take all the quality that we offer the ultra high-end residential home market and try and distill it down to 400 square foot modules and now all of a sudden a voila there's this you know this beautiful structure that is as good a quality as as he can conceive of um and i think that as the reputation grows and spreads, um, what it means to be an owner uh, uh, of a Bifama home will grow in equity, right? People will start to, uh, that brand building, I think, is really, really important for, for the long-term strategy of the company. And I, I think speaking about the background and, and the foundation of the company, um, you know, we really enjoyed filming some of the larger homes that... Panel X and Greg have have produced metal metal paneling for. I think some of those houses were in excess of five thousand square feet. I would say. Yeah, exactly. So there's it's not really a minimalistic uh, mm -hmm. uh, client there. So there's a lot of experience uh, to draw on there that that Panel X draws on, which is great. It's great to see that transferred into um, more environmentally friendly and uh, minimal, minimalist lifestyle home housing. That's why it's pulling at my uh, heartstrings. I think it's a pathway that is uh, a virtuous one. It's it's where we need to focus, and we all have to kind of question, um, you know, how we're moving, you know, and which way we're going. And so this this right. I think feels like the right path. How much of the Earth's resources we actually consume? Absolutely, Bernie. It's a really important question. Excellent. Uh, well, that's great, Daniel.
it's been awesome learning more about uh, Bifama Homes and, and Tiny Homes. I think there's a lot of information here that'll be very interesting, I hope anyway, to our audience. And uh, is there anything else you'd like to add before we go? No, I think that was a nice wrap up. And, uh, you know, I mean, I like what you're doing and just keep up the good work. Sounds great, Daniel. Daniel, how can people get a hold of you if they want to know more about Tiny Homes? Uh, really, the best way to get in, in touch with me and the entire team at BFAMA Homes is really just directly through the website, uh, BFAMAHomes.com. So, Do you want to spell that out for us, please? Yeah, it's uh, B-E-F-A-M-A Homes.com. Great. BFAMAHomes.com, yeah. So we'll transition into your, the other side of your life now, and we'll talk about the Planksit website and what you're doing with authors, which is quite fascinating too, to anybody who's involved or thinking of writing a book. I, um, I think we'll take a short break and then come back with that. Okay. Great. Sounds good, Daniel. Thanks very much. And if, again, if anybody wants to reach Daniel, go to bfamahomes.com and he'll be happy to correspond with you and, and talk about anything to do with tiny homes. Great. Great. Thanks, Bernie. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this Bernie Chats. I hope you'll subscribe, like, or share it with a friend. Feel free to leave a comment, and we'll see you on the next one.